This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is another episode of the spooky edition of the podcast where we talk about horror movies and shows for the month of October. I'm going to be talking about the film Bo is Afraid this week, although it is not a movie that I saw in October. It is a movie that I saw in April, but it is unsettling, and I think that it fits well into the themes that we talk about on this show. So if you haven't seen Bo is Afraid, just know that there's going to be spoilers coming up throughout this episode. And I would say that if you haven't watched it, I I would recommend it. It is not a fun movie. It is deeply unsettling, but it is a cinematic experience. And so I I recommend it. I also will say if you like Ari Aster's other films like Hereditary and Midsommar, Bo is Afraid is definitely different and has a different aesthetic and a different kind of vibe than the other two films, but it is still very much a horror movie and still deals with a lot of the kind of family dynamics that his other films touch on, specifically Hereditary, where the mother-child relationship is pretty prominent in, in the themes of the film. If you haven't watched it and you're not going to watch it, just a brief summary of Bo is Afraid is we follow our main character, Bo, who's played by Joaquin Phoenix, and he is supposed to be going to go visit his mother, and a series of unfortunate events, including his luggage and tickets getting stolen, getting hit by a car, and being trapped in a suburban home with an unhinged family, go finding a troop of actors in the woods who do a play that is inspired by his life or is an allegory for his life and then realizing that when he thought his mother was dead she really wasn't dead and had done the whole thing to teach him a lesson all of that unfolds (laughs) through throughout the movie and it is very surrealist it is very um like there's a dreamlike quality to it and so a lot of people have struggled with understanding the meaning of the film. Is it supposed to be that all of these things have happened to Bo? Is it that it is a dream? Is it some sort of mix? Is it all just allegory and none of it actually happened? It can get a little confusing. I'm not here to tell you <laughs> what if the movie is a dream or not, but I think that there are enough mental health themes or psychological themes in the film that it makes it a good candidate for talking about on this show. So I'm going to talk about a few of the overarching themes and some of the symbolism um, and just kind of like give my thoughts and and how I think that we can kind of psychologically understand the character um, as Bo goes through the movie. So without further ado, we're going to take a quick break and then when we get back, we'll jump right in. The first theme that is very prominent in Bo is Afraid is guilt. And we actually get cued off to this being a theme in one of the very first scenes where we see Bo sitting in 
his psychiatrist's office for a session. And the psychiatrist writes the word guilty on his notepad and underlines it. And the camera angle highlights this, shows us that it is an important moment. Now, some speculation that I've seen online ties this to the end of the film, which is where Bo is essentially put on trial by his mother for all of his bad behavior throughout his life, and he is found guilty in this trial. And so some say that it's it's a foreshadowing to this, that Bo, Bo going through the whole movie is... Although it could be a potential for him to redeem himself. In fact, the the verdict has been given at the beginning that he is guilty and will never redeem himself in his mother's eyes. And I do think that is a very interesting way to make sense of the ending because the ending is very surreal and feels very detached from the rest of the film. I also think that this can, this highlights how clients perceive their mental health professionals judging them in their session. I have worked with many clients over my time in my clinical work and a theme that often comes up across clients with different presentations, different cultures, different issues, like what, just different in every way. A thing that often comes up is this fear that I, as the mental health professional, the therapist in the room, am judging them and have already decided based on my judgment if they are a good person or not. And so I think this small moment in Bo is Afraid highlights this, that clients are deathly afraid that we have judged them and have made the decision that they are guilty or not guilty. And I'm not saying that clients are wrong, like, or if you're a client, that you're wrong for having those thoughts. I'm just highlighting that I think that this is a dynamic that we can all be aware of on both sides, right? That the therapist should be aware of that this can be happening and the client should be aware of that this is possible for it to come up. Um, I think oftentimes clients feel like they're the only people in the world experiencing what they're experiencing. And that may be a function of our very isolated society, which is another, <laughs> another theme I don't need to get into right now. Um, but this, this idea of I'm the only person who's guilty or I'm the only person who feels that I've been judged by my therapist can be very isolating and can contribute to not feeling like you can fully engage in the therapy. Um, And I would say that Bo and his psychiatrist do not have a very easy going relationship. There is a lot of tension in the relationship. But knowing that this moment comes very early, we can now know that Bo carries this very big sense of guilt with him throughout the rest of the film. And I thought that this was a good time to talk about how guilt is actually a symptom of things like major depressive disorder. So when we're working with clients who prominently or predominantly struggle with depression, a sense of guilt is often a symptom that we want to address and make sure that we're working on. And it may even be a question that a mental health professional or therapist will ask you when screening you for depression. They might ask you, do you feel guilty uh, in the last two weeks, do you have you felt guilty most of the day for the uh, you know every day or, or most of the days of the last two weeks? This sense of guiltiness can be considered a cognitive symptom of depression and can be tied to the kind of negative bias that tends to come up in our thoughts when we're struggling with depression. And so it can lead to people feeling like, feeling guilty for their depression itself. So feeling guilty for like, I'm sick, I'm not able to get over this. You know, I can't just 
you know, why can't I be like a person who gets up and goes for a run and feels better and I just stop being depressed? So, so the guilt can build about like their actual illness, their actual struggle with the depression, and then can also manifest in other ways, like feeling guilty for maybe the way that their depression affects other people or just feeling guilty for things that are unrelated to them. So maybe feeling like um, if there's something going on in the family, like maybe a teenager who's depressed, their parents are fighting and the de- the depression might make the teenager be more likely to think things like, this is my fault. Uh, I'm, I'm the reason that they're having trouble. If I had just done better in school, they wouldn't be fighting. So it's, it's my fault. And that sense of guilt that comes with it then becomes the emotion or affective symptom of the depression. Um, and so you can see how it, it can become a bi-directional relationship, right? Things maybe not be going well in life and make you think that it's your fault, and the more you think that it's your fault, the less well things are going to go in your life because you might, if you go through like life acting like you're guilty about something, then things are going to kind of self-fulfill. That prophecy will self-fulfill. And we see that with Bo, that Bo feels incredibly guilty that he has negative thoughts about his mother. And so he goes out of his way to placate his mother throughout the film from the first instance where he tells her he's going to come visit and then his luggage gets stolen and she blames him. He feels like he has to placate her there. Even after she's died, he, the family lawyer keeps telling Bo, you need to be at the house because we need to bury your mother's body immediately. And he feels guilty that he can't get there, even though he's like been mangled by getting hit by a car. Like there are all these things that are outside of Bo's control, but he feels personally responsible for them and that it is his fault that these things are happening to him and his mother. So much like Bo, if you're struggling with depression, it may, one of the symptoms or signs that depression is coming for you or is impacting you in a big way might be this excessive feeling of everything is my fault uh, and like feeling, or, or even just feeling like a sense of guilt out of nowhere and then attributing it to something like I'm starting to feel guilty. It must be because of X, Y, or Z. And that's where our brains can be our foes and not our allies um, because sometimes we feel an emotion first or we have a sensation first and then our brain tries to make sense of why we might have that sensation or feeling and then presents us the reason and when we're depressed our brain is only looking at the negatives it's not having a, an easy time looking at the positives so a brain struggling with depression says wait a minute you're feeling a sense of guilt it must be because you did something wrong. You're the problem. It would be better if you, you know, just stayed in your room all day and didn't interact with people because you're hurting them. Whereas a not as depressed brain or, a, you know, a brain that doesn't struggle with depression would be able to say, hmm, you're feeling guilty right now. It doesn't seem to be attached to anything. Um, you know, we can maybe move on from that. Or there is something that the guilt is attached to and we can address that and then move on and not attribute it to everything that we've ever done in our lives. So again, not to say that the guilt is anything to do with like depression is your fault or you should be able to get through it. That is unfortunately that cycle that people with depression get into of thinking, well, I should be able to get through this on my own. It must be my fault that I'm so depressed. That is the part that's the depression. That is the symptom of the depression, the way that it impacts you. Um, And I think it is very easy for us to think, well, depression is only like sadness or not enjoying things. It's not this, this guilt must be separate. So I must have deserved this or I must be guilty of something. And it's not, it's part of the illness. 
and it can be treated just like the other symptoms. It can be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. It can be treated with acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, it can, it might improve with things like antidepressants. And so if you're like, hmm, I relate to Bo, I, I relate to this kind of uneasy sense of guilt pervading my life all the time, um, that would might be a sign for you to check in with a mental health professional, right? And go, go find your own provider and your own support team and kind of check in and say, you know, this is what I've been going through. I'd like to make some sense of it. And guilt is not only about depression. Oftentimes people who've had trauma might feel guilty or blame themselves for the trauma. Um, so it's not specific to depression. But I, I think with Bo, the, um, that more like depressive presentation makes more sense. Um, Bo's definitely an anxious, anxious man. <laughs> um, but I, I think the depression explanation fits well with him as well. We could also go down the road and talk about, uh, you know, the, the mother guilt and the Freudian implications of that. But I will be talking about Freud later, so let's not uh, dig him out of his grave just yet. <laughs> the next theme that I want to talk about is the theme of paranoia that comes up in the film. And I think that this is one of the things that is done so well in the film and, and provides is pervasive throughout the entire film. And I worry for Ari Oster that he's able to uh, make this sense of paranoia feel so real and that you in the audience kind of going along with Bo feel as paranoid as maybe he does. Now, I will say he did watch it in the theaters, which I think is a very different experience when you have other people around you reacting. And I was with a friend and we were we were both having some reactions <laughs> to the film. Um, so I don't know if it's exactly the same if you watch it like on your own at home. Um, but there is this like sense of paranoia and who's coming after us that you feel throughout the film. Now, there are some theories that I've seen online, and I will say the Bo is Afraid subreddit is an interesting place to find <laughs> these theories. Um, the Some people believe that the film actually takes place in a controlled environment and that every place that Bo visits in the film is 100% controlled by his mother, except for perhaps the when he's in the forest with the traveling acting troupe. The apartment that Bo lives in, is it re, it's revealed at the end of the movie or toward the end of the movie that it's actually a property owned by his mother's company and is part of this like rehabilitation program, which is why Bo's apartment is in such a terrifying neighborhood. And I'm going to talk about that more when I get, when I talk about the anxiety in the film, but his mother or her, her company controls the building that he lived in. All of the food and medication that he takes is branded by the company. Um, after he gets hit by the car and gets taken to the suburban home where Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan play the the parents of the family that are rehabilitating him and they they do a wonderful job but they are so unhinged um every they are revealed to be employees of his mother's company as well as the you uh the like mailman who found his mother's quote-unquote body and his childhood crush they are all employees of mona wasserman his mother's company and this is revealed toward the end when Bo sees a poster of in his mom's like um, home studio, I guess, like her home office, he sees a poster and has the faces of some of these prominent characters in the movie. And I'm sure if you really went through it with a fine tooth comb, you would see that like a lot of the extras or a lot of the 
more random background characters are also in this poster. And so Bo is led to believe that every event leading up to him coming to the house and realizing that his mother's not dead has been orchestrated by her. And that this and he feels justified that his paranoia that his mother has this like overreaching control over him is it's justified. He was right. And so in this case, it's not paranoia to have these thoughts that, you know, his mother has all this control because it's been confirmed. And paranoia typically comes out of things that are not happening, right? And I I think I've talked about this before when I've talked about psychotic disorders, Um, but, you know, someone who might be experiencing a delusion might think, you know, the CIA is out to get me, and because I see the same person at the bus stop every week, they must be part of the CIA and they're tracking all my movements. And so that paranoia comes out of, there's this conspiracy after me, and... Uh, I just need proof to show to like the authorities and the people around me that this thing is actually happening. And Bo has that sense for so long that like his mother is controlling everything, but it's not a delusion because he gets the evidence. He gets to the end of the, the road and finds the evidence that she really was orchestrating a lot of these things. And then in the final scene in the trial, there's footage of him throughout these moments of his life and you realize she has been watching him or she's been aware of everything that he's done. Um, And so he really is not actually paranoid. (laughs) And I think that this really highlights that Bo has been stunted in his development because of his relationship with his mom. Throughout the film, we get to see these flashbacks to this cruise he went on with his mom when he must have been like 11 or 12 years old. And we can see that she likes to have control over every aspect of him. She determines that they're going to sleep in the same bed. They're going to do every activity together. And when he meets a young girl on the boat and they have a connection, she decides, no, you're not allowed to have a crush. You're not allowed to, you're not even allowed to have a friend. And throughout the movie, even though most of the movie we are with current day Bo, who, I don't know, the film seems to suggest that he's like maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, but Joaquin Phoenix is definitely in his 50s. Um, We're with adult Belle. We can still see that that fear that his mom knows everything and is going to catch him doing something bad is with him. That same fear of an 11-year-old boy whose mother is telling him, "You're, you're not allowed to even make friends with this girl. I get the final say in your life. That has followed him into adulthood and has kept him in this perpetual state of arrested development. And I think this can serve to explain why a lot of people maybe don't like Bo as a character, at least from what I've seen online. There's some like, wow, Bo's kind of like a whiny baby or, you know, he's he's incredibly passive, extremely passive. Just things happen to him and he kind of is going along with the flow. And if you think about, although we see him, we perceive him to be an adult man, emotionally and you know psychologically he's an 11 year old boy it makes more sense why he is so go with the flow why he is so scared of everything he's scared of the you know people who live in his neighborhood he's scared of the daughter of the family in the suburbs she is scary but you know he's he is a grown man and should be able to jump out of the car when she takes him hostage but instead he complies with everything and kind of turns inward and, and, and gives up and it goes very passive. And this seems to be all very related to his mother. And so this is where I think paranoia is represented really interestingly because 
on the one hand, it is very justified. Um, but it, it also is very infantile. Like when we're kids, we do believe that our parents can see everything. You know, Santa Claus is so powerful because we believe that there's like a mystical figure that does see everything that's going on. And as we get older, one of the kind of myths that <laughs> or scales that fade from our eyes as we become adults is understanding that, well, nobody is watching all the time. Nobody has that kind of control over us. And we are, as adults, it's up to us to have agency over our decisions versus kind of sitting in the lazy river of life and letting it pull us along. And Bo was never able to make that realization because he has an overbearing mother. <laughs> and so uh, that, and, and, you know, I'm flirting around with Freud. We're going to, we're going to get to him, but this is another, I think a very psychodynamic theme of the, the over-controlling mother and many of the kind of old school psychodynamic or psychoanalytic theories attributed a lot to an overbearing mother. There were theories that, um, gay men had over-controlling mothers and that's why they were gay. Um, there was even a theory that schizophrenia developed because of overbearing mothers or like the, the, whatever the mother did to the child resulted in this like psychosis that manifested in adulthood. I don't know about all that. I definitely do not think mothers make anyone gay because, <laughs> you know, people are born with their, their sexuality. And I don't think that mothers are solely to blame for psychosis. There's, there's a lot that goes on there. Um, and that, that's not the one variable that we're going to pull out and say is the problem. Um, but I, I do think that Bo's passivity and Bo's paranoia and fear of being controlled directly comes from his mother. And those are probably more the consequences of an over-controlling parent is not being able to have agency as an adult because agency was never given to you as a child and not being able to let go of the sinking feeling that someone's always watching. And unfortunately, in the end for Bo, it was that every someone was watching him. Someone was always out to get him. And it's doubly sad that it was his own mother. She does not seem to be his number one fan and seems to be taking out a lot of her anger against his father and men in general on Bo, um, which is not fair, which isn't great. I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying Mona Wasserman is mother of the year <laughs> over here, um, but I do think that we can kind of see the impact that it has on um, Bo's behavior and his development as an adult. Now, the biggest theme, the theme that I think is just so pervasive across the film is the presentation of anxiety and particularly like a generalized anxiety disorder that Bo appears to have. There is not one scene in the film where we're interacting with Bo where he is not anxious about something except for the like dream play where he is really not himself. <laughs> but there at every major plot point, every new character that he meets, there is some type of anxiety that kind of rules Bo's life. And unfortunately for Bo, he often is afraid of something happening in whatever situation he's put in. And then something does happen, which just reinforces the cycle of, I should be afraid of the world. These things are scary and I should be on the lookout for them. I thought one of the one of the examples of anxiety I think is so fascinating because 
it's such a mundane example and I think it's very relatable because it is such a small thing and I would not be surprised if many of you listening have had this type of experience but at the beginning you know we know that Bo is working with a psychiatrist and he's prescribed a a new medication and the psychiatrist emphasizes that when he takes the medication he should make sure to take it with water and all over the pill bottle are these warnings about must take with water And Bo goes to take his medication and then realizes that his water is off. And so he's swallowed the pill, but he hasn't taken any water. And there's no water in the building because he lives in this like rundown building. And he realizes he needs to go across the street to get a bottle of water. Bo is also incredibly afraid of his neighborhood. And we know this because when he returns from his psychiatrist's office, he's like jumping at every noise. And there is a uh, there's a man that like chases him every time he comes to his apartment. So Bo ends up having to sprint into his apartment and close the door um, at the last minute. This is another thing that I speculated, like maybe this was his mom's, another thing his mom did. Like maybe she paid this person to charge at him every time he came home. Because there's absolutely no reason anyone would single out Bo. He just he blends right in. Um, but I, I digress. That is my personal pet theory that the whole world was controlled by his mother. But anyway, um, so he, he's like, I need to go across the street to get water. He knows that if he tries to go outside, he's going to encounter the uh, unsavory folks that live in his neighborhood. Um, but he's kind of weighing the fear of the consequences of taking this pill without water versus the consequences of going out into the neighborhood. And he decides he's going to do it. And it's like every step of the way until he gets the bottle, like he doesn't have enough money. <laughs> he locks himself out of the, or he wedges the door open. So the building gets taken out. His room gets taken over by all the people on the street. He ends up having to sleep on the fire escape. Like <laughs> all these horrible things happen. Um, but he, he does go out to get the water. And the reason why I think this is so relatable is because every single person that I've worked with known in my personal life or my professional life who has struggled with anxiety, particularly anxiety that has a health-based component, like being worried about being sick, being worried about having cancer or, um, you know, worried about side effects of things. This fear that Bo demonstrates of like, I got to take the water because I don't know what's going to happen if I don't is like so common across people with anxiety. And the the fear of what the side effects are going to do often almost act as a placebo and make the person experience side effects. This is part of why psychotropic medications can be so difficult. I mean, medications in general can be so difficult is because sometimes we can have a psychosomatic effect on our bodies because of how worried we are about what's going to happen. Like, for example, if I've been prescribed a antidepressant and I've been told if you don't take this with food you're going to feel nauseous I can work myself up and become so anxious that even if I take it with food I might still feel nausea because I'm because a symptom a, a physical symptom of anxiety might be nausea or of a panic attack might be nausea and so just the idea that like, if I don't do this right, if I don't take this medication right, I'm going to make myself sick, especially when you're first starting an antidepressant, there's not enough serotonin <laughs> getting reuptaked um, or, you know, getting, uh, not getting re-inhibited from being reuptaked. You know, the, the like beneficial effects of the medication haven't fit, hit in yet, but you're having the side effects. It can be so easy to convince yourself that the, it's the medication and and you're more susceptible to the psychosomatic effects because the medication isn't at its full potential yet. 
and I'm, I'm not a prescriber. Meds aren't my, my expertise, but this is something that I have seen everywhere. <laughs> uh, and that is the power of anxiety and of our minds, that this power of the fear of what's going to happen to us can actually start to manifest in our bodies and, and hurt us, especially if we are people who are not aware of our bodies. And I would say the majority of people in America, because that's where I live, are unaware of their bodies in that way, are not attuned to what is happening, how their body is connected to their emotional state or to their mind. You know, we are not two separate entities. Your mind and your body are, they live in the same place, right? They're housed in the same flesh. And so they are connected. And how you feel can impact how you physically experience a mental illness, an emotion, a sensation, like all of those things are connected. And so if you're somebody who's not connected to your body, isn't able to check in with what's going on, it can feel like I'm having these adverse reactions to this medication when I'm taking it because it's been suggested to me that that can happen. And that's not, and that's not to dismiss bad side effects. Like bad side effects happen all the time. That's a different story. Like and if you're having adverse side effects, please, please, please talk to your doctor and, you know, know what is the safest way to stop or mitigate those side effects with the help of your doctor, not on your own. <laughs> I want to reiterate that. Um, I'm, that and that's a separate thing, but I'm talking about these like psychosomatic experiences that, and you know, you can know that it's psychosomatic if it happens too quickly. Like the medication has not been metabolized in your body yet, but you're already having the side effects that that might be a sign that it's more of this like anxious presentation. Um, and we see that with Bo that he starts absolutely losing it. The second that the pill is in his body when it would not have had any time to, um, impact him in physically or physiologically. And it's also interesting that there's, there's not a lot of information about what the side effects are if he doesn't take it with water. So his mind has like all this free reign to imagine what will happen to him if he doesn't take this medication with water. Um, and I know I've spent a lot of time talking about it, but again, it's like, it was just such, it's such a mundane example, but it is, that's why it's so relatable because so many people experience this with anxiety where you're given a little bit of information and then your brain runs away with it. Your your brain takes a mile from the inch you've given it with the new information. Um, and truly, many of the events in the film stem from the consequences of Bo Bo's decisions to deal with getting water when he takes this medication. If he doesn't leave the door propped open to go get the water, then the people don't come in his apartment. If the people don't come in his apartment, then there's not the man hiding in the roof that falls on him and makes him run into the street naked. If he doesn't run into the street naked, he doesn't get hit by the car and yada, 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 yada. Another way that anxiety manifests in this film is that Bo consistently has fears of the future and then they end up manifesting. So for example, at the beginning of the film, he is all set to go visit. His mother has his flight information and his luggage packed and he calls her to say uh you know I'm, I'm coming but I, you know I, I hope I don't miss my flight and then he ends up missing his flight because someone steals his luggage same thing happens when he's uh like more in the middle of the film and he keeps getting told you need to show up so that we can bo- uh, bury your mother and his fear is they're going to bury her without him or they're going to have the funeral without him and when he shows up to her house, the funeral is over and they're packing up. And so that fear became 
realized when he meets the like large ex-marine that lives with Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane. He is afraid that this person is going to hurt him. And what ends up happening is that person hunts him throughout most of the film and, and tries to hurt him. And this speaks a little bit, bit to what I was saying before of like the the self-fulfilling prophecy with the guilt, this can also happen with anxiety, is if we live our lives being completely overrun by anxious thoughts, then we might start to act in ways that lead those anxious thoughts to manifest, right? This can go both ways, right? So some people, when they're really anxious, they over-prepare. So Uh, someone who maybe is in Bo's place and gets prescribed this pill that you have to take with water, they might then go out of their way to make sure that there is like six different sources of water in their house, right? That they've got um, the water in the tap, a water filter in the fridge, bottled water, jugs of water, you know, the water fountain down the street. Like, you know, they're going to over prepare and um, try to prevent every possible problem even though we know that that can't happen, right? We can't prevent every possible problem. And the other side is where Bo falls, where the anxiety is so crippling that they're not able to prepare at all. And they have these thoughts and they have these fears that these bad things are going to happen. And the, the intensity of the anxiety leads to like a freeze response. And so they do nothing. And that's kind of where Bo falls, right? When he gets the medication, he's been told to take it with water and, you know, he had several opportunities on his way home to get water, you know, to stock up on water, to make sure that if he, you know, his water to get cut off in his apartment, then he would have it. And he's not able to make any action. And this happens throughout the film, right? This goes back to this passivity, but Bo cannot make any action happen no matter what environment he's in. So his anxiety does lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy because he has these fears that these things are going to happen and then he's unable to take any action to prevent them. And, you know, we don't want to be on either side of the spectrum. We don't want to be at the completely like paralyzed side. We also don't want to be at the compulsive over-preparing side. We really want to be in a more middle ground where we're able to prepare for an inevitability, um, but we're not completely frozen in response to everything. So, you know, for if you're afraid of missing your flight, doing things like printing out the tickets and having them on your phone um, makes sense, right? But printing out the tickets, having them on your phone, sending them to your friends so that they all have them to uh, getting to the airport six hours in advance. So you can print them out at the desk, even though they <laughs> won't be able to print them for you because you're too early. Like doing above and beyond those things, like that might be too much. It might be part of the the behaviors of the anxiety. Whereas if we're going to be bow, where we just like have nothing done aside from packing our luggage, um, and, w- and when then something does, a bump does happen, right? Like his luggage gets taken. It's just unable to think of any other possible solution. He's so stuck in, well, it was supposed to go this one way and it didn't. What am I supposed to do now? Um, so having that, that cognitive flexibility to be able to think of other options, I think would really benefit Bo. I think would really be something he would, he would, um, maybe have gotten out of some sticky situations if he had that ability to think on his feet. So I would say overall, if you are someone who does not feel anxious very often, which congratulations, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that for you, <laughs> but you want to understand what it's like to have anxiety, I would say watch Bo is Afraid. I think that it is a, it's almost like an immersive experience because not only is Bo 
anxious, but because he perceives his world through these these anxious filters, everything in the world seems scarier. Everything seems more intense. The opening scenes where he's walking back to his apartment, there is so much more uh, sound, light, uh, things going on, movement on the screen. It's very, very overwhelming. And anytime Bo is around other people, it is an overwhelming sensory experience. I mean, the soundtrack alone is going to keep you on the edge of your seat. And there are very few times when there is like peaceful moments. And those typically happen when Bo is like by himself. And even then he is, he's never truly peaceful. So if you want to understand what your friends or family of anxiety go through, then I would say watch Bo is Afraid (laughs) to, to kind of immerse yourself in that experience. Now, I can't talk about this film without talking about the penis monster. And if you know, you know. (laughs) But if you haven't seen the film, essentially what happens is once Bo reaches his mother's house, realizes that she is not dead, that she has faked her own death as a way to punish him, she takes him up into the attic and locks him in the attic with what appears to be a giant penis with arm like spider legs and then someone who looks exactly like Bo but with like a long beard and disheveled appearance and they're chained up in the attic and Bo is kind of left there alone with them um with the assumption that like his mother is now going to keep him hostage in the attic with these other entities that she has up there and this is the part of the film where then a, a lot of people start to diverge in their idea of like is this is this real? Is this something that Bo is hallucinating? Is this where we find out that it has been a dream the whole time? Like, this is where those, those theories of what the film is about start to diverge. I don't think it's as important to understand how the film, like, makes sense of the events and the reality of the film, but I do think the symbolism of the penis monster is very interesting. My personal favorite interpretation of this scene is that the bow that is chained up in the attic is the kind of self-assured part of Bo, the part that would be able to stand up to people, would be able to like defend himself and stand confidently in the decisions he's made. All of the passivity has been left in the Bo that we know and all of the like autonomy or agency or even like aggression or, you know, any like outward uh, focus, all of that has been left in the Bo that has been locked in the attic. With the assumption being that Bo's mother has broken this part of himself out from him and has kept it locked away from him. That she is kind of the gatekeeper to Bo's agency and autonomy. The penis monster is a little harder to interpret. And I have seen people saying that they think it is supposed to be the father. Like that's Bo's father. I've seen some people saying that it is just nothing. It's just like a weird thing. Um, But... What I liked from the LA Times review, which I've linked in the sources, is they talked about it kind of representing the id and it being the penis monster being all of Bo's like most base instincts that he's cut from himself. And this is a little harder to explain if you haven't seen the movie, but another plot point that runs through the whole movie is that um, Bo has never ejaculated in his life. He's never had sex with anyone and he's never like ejaculated on his own essentially because his mother told him that the night he was conceived when his father had sex for the first time with his mother his father died and that every man in their family has died the first time that they've ejaculated and so she's been telling him his whole life 
that he's not allowed or not that he's not allowed, but like that he shouldn't, he should be very afraid of engaging in any type of sexual behavior. And so the penis monster is all of those desires left over and chained in the attic alongside the other side of Bo. So really everybody who's now up in the attic is some form of Bo. And his mother has kept these like two pieces of him from himself. And if we, now we can turn to Freud. (laughs) Now we can turn to Freud and think about the kind of three pieces of the self that Freud um, imagined or theorized about. One is the id, and id is like the most base desires we have. The id just wants to seek pleasure. It's the part of us that seeks good food, that seeks uh, alcohol and drugs, sex, everything. It's The id is kind of like if you think of a two-year-old and all they want is iPad time, they just want the iPad and they don't care that there's a rule that they can't have that much iPad time during the day. They want iPad time. And that like drive that a toddler has to get to an iPad is the id. And I'm sure you can all imagine what I'm talking about, but that is the id. These are our most base desires. The flip side to the id is that it is repulsed by pain. So it does not want to engage in anything that will bring pain. And so Bo's id is caught in wanting to pursue sexual behavior because that's kind of like the one thing he's not really able to pursue because of the world his mom has set up for him. But also not wanting to pursue sexual behavior because he has been told that it will be the ultimate pain. It will result in death. And so I think that's why his id has is no longer human looking, but has devolved into this grotesque monster that's larger than life. It's larger than the bows in the attic. It is no longer human looking. It looks uh, like even though it is genitals, uh, it has like spider legs and and like non-human characteristics to it. And so Bo's id has been placed in an eternal conflict with itself, which has made it grow into a grotesque monster. It is also important to know that Freud theorized that the id was entirely unconscious. It was, it lives in the unconscious mind. And so our conscious mind, the the part of your mind that is thinking about what's going on and able to perceive things is not aware of the id or isn't able to like touch base with the id. The id is completely under the unconscious. Another part of the psyche that Freud theorized about was the superego. The superego is the part that comes in and kind of crushes the id and says, no, you are gross. (laughs) You are not allowed to do the things that you want to do. And you should feel very guilty for having those thoughts that you're having. And the superego is very influenced by kind of like the cultural morality that one lives in. And so it serves as the um, the like end-all be-all of morality in the mind. If we think of the kind of classic trope of a devil and an angel on the shoulder, the id is the devil and the superego is the angel. The id is all bent on drive and doesn't care about consequences. Superego can only think about consequences and would rather stop you in your tracks um, than allow the id to have any pleasure. The superego also exists somewhat in the conscious mind. Part of it is in the unconscious mind. Part of it is in the conscious mind. The superego is that voice in your head that you're often aware of saying, you shouldn't do that. You're a bad person if you do that. Um, you should feel guilty for doing that. Like, 
that's a super ego. I think the bow that we have been following through the film is the super ego left unchecked. Because the id and ego have been removed and are in the attic, <laughs> Bo is now a walking, talking superego. Superego, in Freud's theory, is where anxiety comes from. It's where a lot of neuroses comes from. The superego imposes itself upon the id and then creates a lot of problems for the psyche as a whole. So I think the bow that we have been following is the superego, is only concerned with these consequences and morality and then and thus becomes paralyzed um, because there's no balancing force. There is only superego. Someone whose id and ego is not online and it's only superego is going to be paralyzed by decisions being made and isn't going to be able to find any balance. And will also be incredibly moralistic. The superego is like ruled by dogma and morality. And then lastly, in the middle, we have the ego. This is also something that's present in both the unconscious and conscious mind. And the ego is like the middleman between the angel and the devil. The ego wants to work with the id because the ego understands that if we pursue some of these pleasures and we avoid pain, then we're not going to feel as tense. We're not going to feel as upset with our life. But the ego is also able to come in and say, we have to go about this in the right way. We can't just like mindlessly pursue our desires, we have to use some realistic strategies to get them met in the world. So the ego, whereas the superego would say any pursuit of your base desires are disgusting, especially based on what cultural morality you've been raised in. So if we think about, I'll just use Catholicism because there's a lot of Catholics in the world, but like if you were raised in Catholicism, your superego might say, uh, you know, having any type of desire is sin. Uh, any sexual desire outside of marriage is a sin. You're a gross, dirty person for having those feelings. And the id is like, let's go, let's go. I have this desire. The ego for a Catholic would then come in and say, what is the most realistic way for us to pursue sexual desire? It's to do it within marriage. So we're going to have to engage in behaviors to get us to marriage so that we can engage in, engage in those desires without violating our morals, but also, you know, pursuing the pleasure that the id wants to pursue and understanding we will have more pain if we violate the moral code of the culture that we live in. So superego would say, you should be a monk and never have sex. <laughs> id would say, you should just screw it all, have sex with everyone you meet. Ego is going to be like, hey, there are opportunities for us to figure out how to get to this within the culture and moral code that we live in let me take over for the two of you. <laughs> so the ego in Bo is Afraid is the other Bo that is in the attic. It's the human Bo who is a little more assertive, is able to verbalize to his other self. It's our mother who's done this. She is the problem. Like we need to escape. Is able to acknowledge like what the problem is, with where the pain is coming from. Bo as superego is not even able to acknowledge that his mother is a problem and is in fact so terrified of her. So we have the penis monster as the id, we have the bow we've been following most of the film as the superego, and the other bow chained in the attic as the ego. Interestingly enough, the kind of scary ex-military guy who was chasing Bill, uh, chasing, <laughs> chasing Bo, uh, somehow didn't die in a previous event in the film and he breaks through the window and kills the penis monster, kills Bo's id. And this is this saves Bo, our superego, because he's now able to escape from the attic and go go back to confront his mother. 
And although the symbolism here is a little tricky because the penis monster is dead, it has been killed. But in a way, I think that frees Bo's id from the kind of grotesque prison that it had been caged in, where it had been, you know, it turned into this monster. Because what happens next is then Bo tries to kill his mother and he he attacks her. And I think that is a seeing that Bo's id, this drive to lash out at what is causing him pain, avoid this pain, push it away, get it out of his life, that drive comes back. And Bo is the most aggressive we have seen him be in pretty much the entire film. So in a way, he has been integrated. His id has been integrated into him. However, I don't think that his ego has been integrated into him. He now is just super ego and id, and that's a really nasty combination (laughs) because the ego is the one who takes the middle path, but the super ego and the id, they are at opposite ends, and they will never agree. They will never get along. Um, We know that Bo doesn't last very long after that. He unfortunately does not make it through the end of the film, Um, but I would say that if we were going to pursue, if this... Uh, metaphor played out and then we were to follow Bo afterwards if he didn't integrate the ego that other piece of him that was in the attic um, then he would continue to be incredibly neurotic because his super ego and his id would be clashing with each other and to truly reach a healthy psyche according to Freud you've got to have the ego to kind of balance those two forces all of that to say I don't really know what was going on with the penis monster. I think Ari Aster put it in for it to be funny because it is quite shocking for in the middle of this movie to just then see this monster. Um, But I hope that you enjoyed a little bit of this breakdown of the Freudian theory. I do think the idea of the id, ego, and superego still has some relevance to this day. There's still some kind of consideration that we can give it, you know, in terms of like theory or more abstract concepts. but I hope that the breakdown was was super helpful. And, you know, I could not have talked about this movie without talking about the attic and <laughs> who was chained up in there. Um, so it, I will just end this episode by saying, again, I recommend seeing it. I, I recommend seeing all of Ari Aster's movies. I think he's an incredible filmmaker and he definitely has a lot of mother issues to work through. So <laughs> if you need film <laughs> media to process those issues yourself, I would say, Hereditary is definitely a place to start, but was afraid is a place to start. Um, but yeah, I, I did enjoy the movie. I, you know, sometimes it's nice to watch movies that are unsettling and are quite the experience. And I have thought about Bo is Afraid since I've seen it in April. So it, it's definitely had quite the impact on me. Um, so with that, I will just say thank you as always for listening all the way to the end. And I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.